Our story today, our parable today, is all about hearing. Hearing and how our hearing of a message has the power to completely transform a life. You know, I heard the story of the gospel for pretty much my whole life. I grew up here in Jacksonville. In church, in the message of the church, the message of the gospel was essentially the background noise of a lot of my childhood. I was familiar with the story. I was familiar with the fundamental idea that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And yet one day, one spring afternoon, at a camp out in the panhandle of Florida, this message that I had heard my whole life, I finally heard in a way that took root in my heart and has changed every moment of every day of the rest of my life from the time I was 13 uh, to now. It's changed the decisions I make. It's changed the relationships I enter into. It's changed, obviously, what I chose to do for a living. Right? This one message, this one moment of hearing has changed and is changing my life. Those parts of my life that are not yet changed by it are not yet fully touched by it are daily getting confronted and conflicted with where they're out of alignment uh, with this message that I heard as a 13-year-old when it went from being background noise to the central animating song of my life. This message and gaining a hearing for it is the fundamental conviction at the basis of why we started this church. Right? The belief that this one message and, and whether or not people heard it, really heard it, had the capacity to change every, every life, the life of every man, woman, and child. That this message is the hope of the world, it's the hope of our lives, and it's the hope of the city. The church uh, and its message is needed. And yet, uh, we live in a world, we live in a city in particular, where it is for many the kind of background noise that it was for me for so much of my life. You know, when I meet people and I tell them, they ask inevitably, so what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a Christian pastor who's starting a new church in the city. You know what I've never once heard from somebody in Jacksonville? What's a Christian and what's a church? More often, it's like, oh, yeah, what? why would you do that? Right, we've got those. We, we know that message. We've heard that before. Right? The gospel, the message of Jesus for so many of us and for so many in our world is background noise. So how does this message, this good news about Jesus, go from being background noise to being the central animating song of our lives? Because according to Jesus' parable, which he gives us this extended metaphor for the way that we hear the word, for the way that we accept it, it has the, the power to make the difference between a life that ends in barrenness and desolation versus a life that's marked by abundance and flourishing and joy and fruitfulness that it all comes down in this incredible paradox to something as simple as the way that you listen, the way that you hear a message. And so we're going to look at this extended metaphor, which is really what a parable is. It's this metaphorical world that Jesus calls us to enter, to understand with word pictures something that's a deep and abiding reality. And so in this metaphor, we're going to look at uh, the seed, the soils, and the secret. Uh, that are laid out here for how we go from just listening and it being background noise to it being central. I don't always have three points that alliterate perfectly, but it's nice when it happens. 
First, the seed. What is this parable about? It's a, it's a really simple story on the surface about a man who goes out to sow a seed, a farmer doing the everyday task of sowing seed in the soil. In, in understanding, it comes down to how do we understand what these things represent? What is the story about? Well, Jesus tells us, this is a wonderful parable for us to start a sermon series on the parables in because it's the only one that Jesus actually calls his disciples when they go, what does it all mean? He says, okay, dummies, sit down and I'm going to tell you. Here's what the seed is. Here's what the soils mean. He just, he breaks it down. So it's a preacher's friend to have, have it broken down for you by Jesus. But what Jesus tells us that the story is about is here in verse 10, the secrets of the kingdom of God. That these stories, the story of the, the sower and the rest of the stories that Jesus tells are about illuminating for his disciples and all who hear him what the kingdom of God is all about, what the life and ministry of Jesus is all about, what God is doing in the world. And he uses parables, he uses stories because stories get around some of our preconceived notions of what God must be like or what he must be doing in the world. Here's what one commentator, Robert Capon, says about why Jesus uses parables. He says, in resorting so often to parables, his main point was that any understanding of the kingdom that his hearers could come up with would be a misunderstanding. Mention Messiah to them, and they would picture a king on horseback, not a carpenter on a cross. Mention forgiveness, and they would start setting up rules about when it ran out. From Jesus' point of view, the sooner their misguided minds had the props knocked out from under them, the better. So what Jesus knows is that their ideas of the kingdom, their ideas of God's grace, their ideas of what God is doing in the world were so woefully inadequate that he told stories to surprise them, to shock them, and to seeing it for what it really is. How do most kingdoms of this world go forward? They go forward with, with loud show. They go forward with an army and a king on a horse. They go forward by force and compliance. And yet, how does this kingdom go forward in the way that Jesus talks about it? Out of weakness and vulnerability, right? It's a, it's a, it's a farmer taking a seed and throwing it into a field. Well, what's a seed? A seed is that thing that's so imperceptibly small that you throw it in the dirt and bury it. And for weeks or months, it looks like nothing at all is even happening. You might think that you've lost it. You might think that it's been snatched up by, some other kind, for, by a bird or some kind of forager. And yet when it's buried, when it goes underground, it starts doing its work. It starts to grow. It starts to give life, a life that was bigger and beyond anything that you would have seen in the sea. The kingdom goes forward, Jesus tells us, through weakness, through vulnerability, what Paul will go on to call the foolishness, of a preached message. Jesus tells us that the seed is the word of God. Right, the rest of the New Testament fleshes out this picture some. It gives us the way to think about what is the word of God. Well, the word is certainly the message. God's spoken self-revelation. But that it finds its fullness in Jesus himself. That Jesus himself is the fullness of God's word. The ultimate picture of God's self-revelation of who God is like. So Jesus is the seed, is the message. Jesus so identified with the word about himself that the way we hear, the way we respond to this message is the way we respond to the person of Jesus himself. Jesus tells us uh, that unless a seed, he calls it a grain of wheat, 
unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it can't give new life. It can't, it can't bloom into a new plant. And so the mystery of this seed is that Jesus himself died and was buried, seemingly lost, seemingly cut off from life, before erupting up into new life, new resurrected life. And at the heart of this parable is this. What do you do with the seed? What do you do with the person of Jesus uh, that's given to you and offered to you in the gospel? This incredible message that God is for you in Christ, that he's given you his love and his mercy, access to a relationship with God. When you're receptive to Christ, it blooms out into new life, into resurrection life, into abundant life. And yet whether or not this happens in our lives, whether we experience uh, this fruitful and abundant life has everything to do with the way that we receive Jesus, the way we receive the message about him. And so that's where Jesus uses uh, this metaphor of the soils. Jesus uses uh, the soil to describe the human heart and its posture, its receptivity to Jesus. He gives us four different pictures. Hard soil, shallow soil, Soil that's crowded out by other things. And then one soil that's soft and receptive, nurturing to life. You know, there's, there's a way of getting at this text in a way that I've, heard, I've thought about the passage for a long time, shaped by sermons I've heard, about where, where it's largely about, well, which kind of soil are you? Are you hard-hearted? Are you soft-hearted? Are you distracted? Are you shallow? And as I, as I looked at this passage, I came to see so much of myself in every single one of these types of soils. Sometimes I am really, really hard-hearted. Sometimes I'm unbelievably shallow. Sometimes I'm so distracted that the very life of God within me seems threatened to be cut off by the concerns of this life. And so I think that, that as we come to look at this, it is good to do a self-diagnostic about what is the state of my heart? What am I doing with this seed that's given to me, this person of Jesus? but acknowledging that sometimes we're all of these all at once, or depending on the day, we vacillate back and forth. The first kind of soil uh, that Jesus talks about is the hard soil of the path. Soil that's so compacted down uh, that the seed just bounces along the top. It never penetrates. And then birds come and, and take the seed away. It's a hard heart that's unable or unwilling uh, to receive the seed of the word, that's unwilling uh, to let it in to be changed. You may have heard uh, there was a story last week, the NFL, their, their first preseason game of every year is the Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio. It's scheduled, they look forward to it. It's right on the, the heels of everybody coming into the Hall of Fame. Well, whoever painted the field this year used the wrong kind of paint. And so it hardened over the end zones and over the midfield so that cleats could not penetrate the paint. Uh, it was like, imagine walking on cleats on a basketball court or on a sidewalk. They, couldn't, they just couldn't bite. So they canceled the game. The ground had become too hard to be penetrated. It's a picture of what this hard path uh, is like. It's impenetrable. And Jesus says that this is like the human heart uh, that's, that's unwilling to receive the message of Jesus. This isn't so much about our inability to understand the message. This isn't about a human heart that's unwilling to or unable to process it. It's about an unwillingness 
It's about a hardness that says, I would rather go on in my own life and be left well enough alone than open myself to this message that even if it changes me for the good, offers to bring change, and change is always painful. Right? It's a heart that sits back and says, no. I would rather go my own way with my own thoughts and my best, my best ideas than open myself to the fact that I might have been wrong about God all along. I might have been wrong about some of the most basic things about life. And so we close ourselves off to the very hope of being changed. The poet W.H. Auden has this great stanza. He says, We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. We would rather be ruined than changed rather than open ourselves up uh, to a message that might change us. And Jesus warns in this parable uh, that unless you let the word penetrate your heart, unless you open yourself to the possibility of being changed, the very life of God will be snatched away. And instead of bearing fruit and abundance, you'll, you'll end with nothingness. You may be here with a hard heart. In every church, there's a certain number of people that are there just because they think they need to be. Maybe your spouse dragged you here. Uh, maybe the city rescue mission told you you needed to be in church on a Sunday. Maybe you're here because your mom or dad woke you up before you wanted to be up this morning and dragged you here. And yet Jesus tells us that in every encounter with the word, with every encounter with his message, we either soften our hearts or harden our hearts. No encounter with Jesus leaves us unchanged. We have to be willing to say, Jesus, even if I don't understand you, even if I don't know exactly what it means for me, I want to know. I want to know what I've been missing. I want to know who you are. I want to know what life with you offers. To move from a hard heart to a soft heart. Next, Jesus goes to the shallow heart, the shallow soil. There's a thin layer of topsoil that might have been rich with rain and nutrients, so seeds spring up quickly. But when heat comes, the seed withers and dies. The plant never reaches maturity. Jesus, in his explanation of this kind of soil, says this. These are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Who are these people that receive the good news with a rush of enthusiasm and joy? but when the heat of life comes along, withers away. Well, quite frankly, uh, this is the kind of heart that modern American religion is perfectly tailored to create. At least, at least since the early 20th century, we have been experts at creating religious moments for people. Moments where people in a rush of emotion feel something in our hearts and respond in this flood of emotion to Jesus, but are given no bedrock, no objective truth to sink our roots down into. This may be a part of your story. Maybe you showed up to a revival uh, one night or you followed somebody to a camp when you, were a youth, when you were a student and a speaker stood up there and with great music playing, they presented you with the choice. Do you want to go to heaven with Jesus and mom and dad? Or do you want to go to hell where it's hot? And in that moment, you thought to yourself, wow, heaven sounds really nice. Hell sounds terrible. 
And so you felt some feelings and you walked an aisle. And then you got home. And what happened? You still found yourself tempted to sin. Those things that you thought would no longer draw you to those old patterns, they were still there. You still suffered. You still struggled through life in a fallen world. And so you thought to yourself, man, I guess it didn't stick. I guess I didn't pray the right prayer. I guess I didn't walk the, walk the right aisle. So what do you do? Either you keep doing it, right? You keep, you keep looking for another aisle and more feelings and another revival. And you do it again, hoping that this time it sticks somehow. Or eventually you just grow tired. And you say, you know what? <laughs> I tried the gospel. I tried Jesus and it didn't work. It wasn't all it was cracked up to be. It wasn't what I was promised it would be. And so you fall away. And that's what Jesus tells us is this kind of soil. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous for our lives. Listen, you are not saved by your feelings about Jesus. You are saved by Jesus. You can't, if, you, if you attach your hope, if you attach your security to how you happen to feel about Jesus in a given moment, you have every reason to believe that you're, you'll never be secure. The gospel offers us more than just riding the wave of our own subjectivity about how we feel in the moment. There's objective things. A real person who really died on a cross, who was really risen from the dead, who really offers you new life that you can sink your roots into. There's a real word of God that offers a fundamental foundation for you. There's real sacraments to nourish your faith. There's a reality to life with God that rescues us from the unpredictability of our own emotions. So that's the second soil, the shallow heart. And then the third soil is the distracted heart. I think this may be, for me, the most sobering one of all. He says, And as for that that fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Who are these people? These are those of us who receive the message of Jesus, who receive his word into our hearts, and yet as life starts to happen to us, what Jesus calls the cares and riches and pleasures of this life start to creep in on our hearts. The very life of God is on the verge of being choked out of us. The cares of life. These aren't bad things. These are the things that we encounter just by virtue of being human. Right? The anxieties that can weigh on us in life. Anxieties of our public life, wondering where our society is going, where our communities are going, what's happening to us. We can start worrying so much about those things that it threatens to choke off the life of God. Our private lives, things like raising kids, things like going to work, getting up and going to school, our jobs, right? These regular, everyday, can't-avoid-them kind of things, things that we, we are called to care about. We can care about so much and so out of proportion and to a level that they start to choke out our faith. 
riches and pleasures. These are good things that are given to us. Right? If the second soil was choked out by trials, these are choked out by blessings. The ways that we as, as modern Americans who have more access to riches and pleasures than almost any other people on the face of the earth before us, the ways that our own distractions threaten to crowd out our life with God, these things threaten our hearts. The poet Billy Collins put it this way. I love this line. He says, all babies are born with a knowledge of poetry because of the lub-dub of the mother's heart is an iambic pentameter. But then he said, life slowly starts to choke the poetry out of us. This image, right, of life coming in and choking out the poetry that children are born to know and to love. Well, we might say, to, to take our own liberties with Collins' words, that every Christian is born with poetry inside. We're born with this rich joy of the gospel, this rich and incredible good news that the God of the universe is so for you, is so, so given to you in love that it, it, at immense cost to himself, he gave everything to secure you, to love you. And this joy, this poem, this song in our hearts starts to gradually get choked out by life by normal, everyday stuff. In the great tragedy of my life, uh, the great tragedy, I think, of a lot of our lives, is that we've convinced ourselves that this is normal. That, yes, there's people, mystics and monks and nuns and people like that, that have the, they have the luxury of blocking out everyday life to meditate and to read the Bible and to pray and to focus on this life with God within us. But me, I'm just... I'm just, I'm a busy pastor. I'm not a monk. I'm just a mom. I'm just a businessman. I'm, whatever it is that God's calling you to, the I'm just a blank. So I don't, have, I don't have the ability to pay attention to God, to nurture and to cultivate the soil of my heart so that it might give life to a life beyond me. I think that's the greatest tragedy uh, oftentimes of our lives. And so what is the secret uh, what's the secret for normal, everyday people to experience this kind of fruitful, abundant, joyful life with God? Well, Jesus tells us uh, that it's in this fourth soil. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. It's so simple and yet so incredibly miraculous. That the ultimate difference between whether you experience life as being dry and arid and lifeless or whether you experience, as, experience it as being abundant and joyful and fruitful is how you hear. It's how you receive. It's whether your heart is in a posture of accepting and nurturing the message that Jesus plants in us. Right? It's, it's not about anything else. I don't know a whole lot about farming. It may shock you to know. But Jesus makes the picture incredibly simple for us. He doesn't, he doesn't bring into, into this picture any of the other conditions that might, or might be necessary and might affect a plant's life. He doesn't talk about shade or sun. He doesn't talk about rain. He doesn't talk about nutrients. He simply reduces it to, is the soil receptive or is it not receptive? Does it open itself? Does it not open itself? 
I often get the question about this passage. Well, what do I do if I, if I, if I listen to it and I hear it and I come, become convinced that my heart is hard or my heart is shallow or my heart is distracted? What do, what do I do? Am I doomed to live with that kind of heart? Well, no. What you do is this. You repent. You say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my hardness. I'm sorry for the ways that I haven't been receptive to you. I'm sorry for how distracted I've been. For the ways that I've made idols, made, made best things out of these good things you've given me. I'm sorry for the ways that I've, that I've not grounded my life in you. A soft heart is simply a repentant heart. It's simply a heart that says, Jesus, I'm sorry and I want. I want you. I need you. And that's available to us at any moment to repent and to ask God to soften our hearts and to receive him and to help his life to grow within us. And the message, uh, the simple message comes into our hearts and starts to produce new life. I love the way that it's described. Those who hold it fast in an honest and good heart bear fruit with patience. With patience. That means it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, that means that every one of us is in process. Every one of us is, is not who we will be. Every one of us is not yet a fully mature and flourishing plant. But with patience, the message over time will change us. And it will lead to make us more fruitful and soft and loving and courageous people. People more like Jesus. As the message works its way down into our hearts. Garrison Keylor. Uh, the, the writer and radio host who did Prairie Home Companion told a story, and I'll end with this. Uh, he told a story about a young woman named Lydia who grew up uh, in the fictional town of Lake Wobegon. Lydia grew up uh, with her parents who loved her. She grew up in the, the Lutheran church that flourished there in Lake Wobegon in Minnesota. And yet when she hit her, teen, her teenage years, her late teens, she got stir-crazy. Her house felt to, started to feel a little bit small. Her parents' rules a little bit too constricting. Her parents' faith no longer rang true. And so she got up and she bought a bus ticket. And she went down to New Orleans. And when she was in New Orleans, she indulged in all that city has to offer. She got herself a job waiting tables. Uh, she met a boyfriend. They began living together. Her boyfriend got a job uh, drinking beer and watching TV and passing out midway through the day. And so as she worked and as she lived with this guy, increasingly she began to feel the emptiness of her life there. And she began to long uh, for the simple life back in Lake Wobegon with her parents who loved her, with this church that had nurtured her within this community. And so uh, one evening when she got back from her shift, she took the last rent check, slid it under her boyfriend's beer bottle, snuck out, bought another bus ticket taking her this time back from New Orleans, uh, back up to Lake Wobegon. And she went back to Lake Wobegon, and she didn't move back in with her parents. She got a small house. Uh, she got a job uh, where she worked again as a waitress. She felt constantly with her, as, as you would in a small town, uh, that everybody knew who she was. She felt like she wore her past indiscretions uh, around her neck everywhere that she went, like everybody knew uh, where she'd been and what she'd done. She would go back to her parents' house from time to time for family dinners uh, where they'd, they'd spend time together. Then Keeler tells the story of, of one day at Thanksgiving 
after she had eaten her fill, had all the turkey and all the stuffing and all the extras, she began to, to walk around her parents' house. Uh, she began to, to go back to her old bedroom. She walked down the hall and into the living room, and she saw the old pictures about her life with them. And she saw this picture of her as a young girl, a picture where she was posed and every hair was in place, and she wore a beautiful smock dress where she seemed so happy before uh, the rebellion of her teenage years had come in and before the hardships of her young adulthood. She picked up the picture and saw where her dad on the frame had written in his own handwriting a label that said, R. Lydia, and had stuck it on the frame, right there on the front of it, for anybody who came into their house to see. And as she held the picture, she began to, to break down and to cry because she knew what those two words meant, R. Lydia. They meant that no matter where she had been or what she had done, her parents never stopped claiming them, claiming her for their own. This was our Lydia. Even when she was in New Orleans, even when she had run away from them into the arms of some other man, that she was still theirs, that they had chosen her, they had stuck with her in their love for her, our Lydia, our loved one. And she felt the shame and the hardness of heart start to melt away from her. And she felt it start to change her. And that's what the gospel says to us. That's the message that I heard as a 13-year-old boy when I finally went from hearing it to hearing it. It went for being true of other people out there somewhere. To me hearing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit saying, you're our Dave. That's what the gospel does to us. It tells us. You're ours. You're our Sarah. You're our John. You're our Chip. You're our Rob. You're ours. At immense cost to ourselves, we've gone after you and we've loved you. And that message, not just the hearing of it, but the knowing of it, the experience of it, it sneaks its way down from your ears, down into your heart. And it does change us. It softens us until we become people who are able to love others in the way that we've been loved by God the Father, by God the Son, and God the Spirit. It softens us, and it moves into our hearts. And Jesus in this story tells us, it breaks through the soil, and it springs forward into new life, abundant life, resurrection life, to give life to the world.